Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Rob Sidow, CEO and co-founder of Scoop, a hybrid team coordination solution that's raised $8 million in funding. Rob, thanks for chatting with me today. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Sure. I'm the CEO and co-founder at Scoop. I started Scoop with my brother. Scoop is a hybrid team coordination solution, so we help companies and teams where employees spend part of their time in the office and part of the time out make sure they get full value out of that office time that they know who's going to be there. They can connect and have the right types of activities on the right days. We also built something called the Flex Index, which is a global repository of office requirements. So job seekers can figure out which companies offer which level of flexibility. I'm also the host of a podcast, uh, the Flex Perspectives podcast, where we interview future of work thinkers, innovators, investors, operators um, on new and interesting topics related to the future of work. And I started my career a number of years back at Bain doing strategy consulting. What was it like when you switched from strategy consulting to being a founder? What was like the biggest difference in your life? Oh, there's a bunch of big differences. I guess the biggest one is, yeah, I worked at a big company like Bain, thousands and thousands of employees, big established company. And you get so used to how much supporting infrastructure is around you. When you recruit, all of the candidates come to you. The interview process is really clearly laid out. The way you approach projects and pricing and all these things is very, very straightforward because the path has been laid for you. When you switch to being a founder, all of a sudden there's no infrastructure. So you have to figure out how to do everything from scratch, right? And anything from hiring to incorporating to you know, building product for the first time. Uh, so for the first, I would say six months, a year, that was a pretty eye-opening experience for me. And I see that you were also doing some active angel investing there on the side. Can you talk to us about that? Sure. I love supporting other founders. I think one of the most powerful parts of Silicon Valley, and when I say Silicon Valley, I don't just mean the, the Bay Area. I mean, you know, the tech ecosystem broadly is the pay it forward nature. And the fact that we rely really heavily on mentors that have built companies and operated large companies to steer me and to give guidance over time. And I like to pay that forward as best I can to other folks. And so a lot of people we invest in are either people who are close friends or in our network or other people that we've worked with over time. But it's really fun, honestly, to support others. And it actually allows you to introduce an interesting kind of new reflecting glass, if you will, to your own business and problems by talking about somebody else's business in a way that I find really refreshing. And are there any patterns there with the types of deals that you're doing angel investing into? Just a quick scan. They all seem very, very different. Is that by design? Are you trying to kind of learn all of these different industries or is there a pattern there that I'm maybe missing just from skimming over the names? I think the pattern is probably more about the people than it is about the business itself. We try and stay a little bit. And most, by the way, I should note that most of the time when I do angel investing, it's with my brother. So we do it together and we'll work together on companies. My brother being my co-founder also. But generally, it's people that we've come to know for a, a long time or come really highly recommended to us through other people we trust. We stay generally in lanes of things we understand, B2B software, marketplaces, things like that, but probably less industry specifically focused than we are people focused. And what's it like working with your brother? It sounds like you guys must be pretty close then. So you're doing angel investing together, you're running this company together. How do you navigate, you know, if there's 
professional challenges? How do you ensure that doesn't cross over into your personal relationship? Yeah, I would say about 90% of the time, it's awesome. About 10% of the time, it's terrible. And we've gotten pretty good at kind of like maximizing the good times and figuring out how to work through you know more challenging times. I would say in the early days of Scoop, we would sometimes have arguments and you know, we would wonder, okay, is, is this argument actually between us as founders or are we arguing as brothers about something that maybe has been a legacy issue for 20 years and is now popping up in some funny way? But one of the things that we've done, I think, particularly well over time is figure out kind of what hats each of us wear and make sure we're really clear in terms of who owns what and how we make decisions. And as we've just learned more about each other and how we like to work styles-wise, um, it's gotten smoother and smoother. And now, honestly, I can't imagine founding a company or leading a company with anyone else besides my brother. So it's it's become very second nature and a really positive part of the experience. Nice. That's awesome. Now, a few other questions that we like to ask, just to better understand what makes you tick. First one, what founder or CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? I really admire Dylan at Figma a lot. I met Dylan in the in the really early days of Scoop. Um, we both had raised capital from Index and we would catch up from time to time to see each other at different events. One of the things I really appreciate about Dylan, you know, obviously the, the success that he's had with Figma speaks for itself, but... Dylan was just always incredibly methodical and patient in the way that he approached building the business. It was very steady and methodical in terms of developing product and testing out the pricing and actually rolling out pricing and building his team. One of the things I think that's hardest as a founder is just to stay really in control of the pace of the business and how do you build it and scale it over time. And I always felt like Dylan had a really, really kind of amazingly strong handle on that. And obviously the outcome has been you know, fantastic for them over time. Is that deal going to go through? Last I had heard the DOJ was blocking it, which I, I can't imagine the emotional <laughs> turmoil in your head of thinking you have a $20 billion exit and then the government maybe says that you don't. Have you been following that at all? Do you know if that's going through? I've been following it. Honestly, I have no better information than you do. It's not my area of expertise. Uh, I'm not quite sure. I think either way, honestly, Figma is going to be a you know, really successful business, whether it's independent or whether it ends up being part of Adobe, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, that's true. Makes sense. What about books? Is there a specific book that's had a major impact on you? And this can be a business book or can just be a personal book that influenced how you think about the world and view the world. I don't think there's a single book that necessarily had the greatest impact. I've read a lot of stuff and I like to read a lot, but I don't know if there's one that kind of stands out. Maybe I'll give you a slightly different approach to that question, which is I found a TV show that actually has had a lot of impact on me as a founder. I don't know, do you watch Chef's Table at all? I've watched it. Yes. Okay. So I really like Chef's Table. Part of it is because I can't cook at all. And so it's just amazing to me to like watch what they can accomplish. But one of the things I love about it is each of these you know, chefs and the way they build their restaurants and their businesses, they're truly building these just unbelievably phenomenal products. And there are so many similarities to building any type of company, startup or otherwise, and the way they approach it, the passion, the amount of study, the experimentation, the love for what they do, how they even lead in the kitchen and watching them lead other people. I actually really love it as an example of what the founder's journey is like in that, you know, sometimes I think in the tech ecosystem, we think what we go through is pretty unique, but really that founder experience is quite similar in lots of different types of industries. And I love those kind of deep dives on what makes them tick and how they build their respective businesses. Uh, that's just one of my favorites. Yeah, it's cool watching like a, a true master at work. And, and that's the feeling I get from that show. You know, I was um I was in Peru and I was at this restaurant called Central and we were like, well, this is like cool. This is very special. 
And then one of the uh, the waiters asked us if we had heard about it from the TV show. And we had no idea that the chef had been on Chef's Table. Uh, but he was. Have you seen that episode on, on Central? I'm trying to remember if I have. I might have. It must have been an amazing experience, by the way, eating there. Oh, it's so cool. And like this guy has like a, I think it's like a chief science officer. And like they're out in like the hills of Peru finding these like unknown potatoes, like all of this, just like crazy stuff. And it was a, a fascinating experience. And it was fun to you know, eat at this restaurant and then go watch that show afterwards and, and see the whole backstory behind them. It was just fascinating and a really fun, fun show. It really changes your whole appreciation for what they do. And when you understand the depth and richness of the study and the topography of the land and how they think about where they get their produce, I just find it fascinating. Yeah, totally agree. Now let's switch gears and let's talk about the company. So we call this segment The Pitch, and this is your elevator pitch. So let's talk about the problem you solve, who you're solving it for, and really what the solution does. Sure, absolutely. So as I mentioned on the front end, is Scoop build hybrid team coordination software. And what we found really early in the pandemic is that most people, when they would go into the office, would find that experience leaves a lot to be desired. And maybe it's because you go in and the person you thought was going to be there isn't there. And you say, okay, well, if I'd known they weren't going to be here, I would have just worked from home. Or you go in and you spend the day on Zoom and ask yourself why you came in if you're just going to be on video conference anyway. And so at Scoop, we focus on solving a, a particular set of challenges for employees and then an associated set of things for employers. On the employee side, we do three things. One is we make it incredibly easy to share where you're working or planning on working and see where other folks are working so that when you go into the office, you can do that with confidence. The second is if you're not sure where you want to work or when folks might be in the office, you can launch a poll and immediately align with other folks on what day works best for people and have it automatically added to calendars. So think about it as taking several hundred Slack messages that might go back and forth and actually distilling it into 30 seconds to align on a time to get into the office together. And then third, on the days that you're in the office, making it more valuable by using Scoop Scheduling Assistant to add lunch, coffee, one-on-one, whatever it might be with somebody else who's going to be in the office. So you feel like you get in-person collaboration opportunity with folks that make it feel worthwhile to go into the office. That's where we really focus on the employee side. On the employer side, we bring not only that functionality, but also a lot of rich insight into where folks are working or planning on working. How does that vary across teams or across offices? in a way that's quite valuable for informing anything from your real estate strategy in terms of how much office space you need and how you might want to set it up, to even your people strategy and how do you think about hiring in which areas you do it in. Wow, fascinating. So is this like an ROI story or, or what's the story that you're telling to customers? Yeah, I think we tell a few different, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as stories. I would say there's kind of a few things that our customers find particularly valuable in Scoop. You know, one, I think that most company executives today believe that it is pretty important to be able to bring your teams together in person, at least at some level of frequency. And I think a lot of folks are finding it hard to motivate employees to want to come into the office because that office experience isn't great. And the tangible benefit of that for executives generally is pretty obvious in terms of opportunities to collaborate, coordinate, and build relationships better understand culture and feel more attached to the company. And so one piece of it is how do you actually enable employees to get together more easily? And some of our customers have found even an increase of you know almost 10x in terms of the amount of time that employees spend in office after rolling out Scoop. And so that's a pretty valuable piece. The other is 
companies make really big decisions around how they approach hybrid work in their real estate and how much real estate footprint they need. And while companies might be able with badge data to be able to understand kind of like how many people are coming in, quite often that's a little bit clunky and it's hard to analyze, to actually pull it. With Scoop, you can see who's coming in and who comes in together. And that helps inform a lot about how the company is working, what kind of space you need, how they collaborate. And that really helps optimize a pretty big investment for a lot of companies in their real estate. And can you take me back to the early days? So it looks like you launched in January 2015. What were those early conversations like with your brother and with others as you, you know, talked about this idea and explored diving into this idea? Yeah, so that's actually a fairly simple question, but it's a pretty complicated story. So John and I, my brother, and I started Scoop in 2015, but we actually started with a very different premise. And so originally, Scoop was focused on the experience of the commute. We grew up in Atlanta, and our high school was 25 miles away from where we lived. And so growing up, we would drive 250 miles a week back and forth to school. And so we became really interested in this idea of, can you deliver a better commute experience to employees and bring that to businesses as a solution for them? So we built carpooling software to support that and actually scaled that into a pretty meaningful business from 2015 to 2020. In 2020, when the pandemic hit, we actually saw commute volume drop pretty precipitously, probably not very surprisingly with a lot of the companies doing kind of shelter in place and, uh, and local requirements around COVID. And so in late 2020, we actually shifted the focus of the business and, and recognized that there was an emerging opportunity in hybrid that we just thought was really interesting and something that was going to be the future in many ways. And we had a lot of experience and logistics and helping employees interact and and these types of problems. And so in some ways, we kind of rebirthed the company in 2020 to focus on what we do now. So it's really a company in some ways that's operated in two different chapters. Wow, super interesting. And then what was it like when COVID hit? Can you just talk us through like what was going on inside your head as all that was starting to unfold? Yeah, honestly, it's probably the hardest thing I've ever had to go through. Certainly professionally, maybe on both sides, you know, honestly, at least a very, very long time. It was really challenging for a couple of reasons. One, it was really unclear what was going to happen. And one of the things that made it particularly challenging was, and you may remember this, but in, you know, in March of 2020, originally, if you had said, hey, I don't think people are going to be back in the office for years, people would have laughed at you. You know, they thought that, you know, okay, maybe a couple of months or by summer, people back in the office. And then, you know, every few weeks, it would be, oh, no, it's just going to be a few weeks later, or then another COVID wave would hit. And so you know, one of the big challenges of it and what made it so difficult to navigate through was the total lack of clarity on how long COVID was going to last and what that was going to look like. And the other was that you know, we had built something that was pretty special, impacting lives for hundreds of thousands of commuters across really big companies. And it was difficult to have that taken away from you, you know, in a way that's not any fault of our own, just the world kind of turned upside down. And so it was one of the most challenging experiences I've ever had to navigate through and our team had to navigate through. And frankly, I'll probably take lessons from it in terms of what does it mean to lead and be empathetic and roll with the punches for the rest of my career in a way that you know, I, I doubt anything else will ever hold a candle to. Yeah, I think that's probably the same for a lot of founders, right? Who had to navigate all of that craziness. It was just such crazy times. Absolutely. And I think there's a class of leader that probably has been created out of that experience that maybe the Valley just didn't have for a while because things have been just so up and to the right for a long period of time since, you know, basically the, the financial crisis. And I think we all learned a lot about what it means to lead and, and navigate as an entrepreneur during those times in a way that feels really painful in the moment, but probably 
yeah, over the long term teaches you a lot of valuable lessons. Yeah, you know what I've talked about with a lot of other founders recently is like, when COVID happened, like we've not really had time to process it until now, but it seems like a lot of people are kind of processing it because, you know, COVID was unfolding. There was a lot of panic. No one knew it was going to happen. And then we just had these crazy boom times that no one really expected. And then now things have kind of calmed down a bit more. And I think everyone's starting to kind of process and like just go through those, you know, questions like, wow, like what happened? Like that was insane. That seems to be what uh, a lot of other founders are talking about now. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because for our business, we were hit so hard by COVID, right? Like in some ways, I always, I could joke about this now, it wasn't very funny at the time, but you know, if you were to go to some kind of class and they were to say as an exercise, you know, come up with an idea for a startup that's going to get hit the hardest by a global pandemic. Well, carpooling, you know, where people are going into the office in a car together is like pretty damn close to the center of the bullseye, you know, in terms of the impact of it. And at the same time, at that point, kind of the tech ecosystem broadly was booming, right? So like a lot of companies had their best years, the back half of 2020 into 21, 22, right? Like so really, really good times for a lot of tech companies. And so in some ways, we kind of had our, you know, kind of big moment where we had to take a step back and reflect in 2020 when a lot of companies were still flying pretty high. And then more recently, obviously, a lot of companies have really struggled just because of the macro environment changing. But for us, we already took that pain in a way several years earlier. And so it's been a lot less jarring in some ways for us now as it was then. Probably the biggest lesson I take away from it is that that random event that happens to some other company because of something else happening in the marketplace, all of that stuff kind of evens out over the long run, right? Everybody gives their lucky moments and their unlucky moments. And at the end of the day, as a founder, all you really can control is like kind of the way you lead and operate and the culture you build, right? And so that stuff is with you all the time and the way you control your balance sheet and the capital and how much you spend. Because at the end of the day, the only thing that allows you to weather the storm, so to speak, is your own financial control of the business, um, the ability to wait out some of that stuff. And when did you guys raise the majority of those funds? Was that pre-COVID or did that come after COVID? So we've raised, as you mentioned, we've raised $8 million. That's really for the chapter two, so to speak. So everything we do on hybrid, and we raised that mm-hmm. in, I think, September, October of 2022, right? So that's when we did our financing. But we had raised a bunch of capital before that for Scoop as a commute solution that had happened you know, anywhere from 2015 to 2019. Mm, okay, got it. That makes a lot of sense. And in terms of market categories, what are your views there? Is hybrid team coordination your category? And if so, is that an established category that Gartner has named? Or is that a a term that you guys have coined and you're really trying to shape into a new market category? Yeah, I would say it's pretty new, although I don't think it's just us. For example, G2, I think literally just in the last month created a new category called hybrid team enablement, which is very similar, the same kind of idea. In some ways, if you take a step back, Hybrid work didn't really exist in the capacity that we talk about even five years ago, right? Like if you go in Google News and search for hybrid work and say, I only want the dates to be from like 2019 or before, there's literally nothing like that term didn't exist. Now it's an emerging opportunity, not just, you know, in in tech and startups, right? But yeah, there are more than a billion people globally operating in a hybrid environment now. And from every piece of data that we look at, and we have better data than most because of the work we do on the Flex Index, more and more companies on a percentage basis are choosing to be hybrid each passing month. And so this idea of how do you enable and support teams and hybrid and in a way that the location of 
an employee is no longer fixed in the office, but might be a variable on a day-to-day basis. It's a pretty new challenge. And companies, I think, are starting to wake up to that over the past you know, months and you know, last, say, I'd say 12, 24 months in particular. And so it's a newish category, but it is a, it's a really important one and one that's growing very fast. And were you actively influencing the defining of that category at all? Were you working with G2? Yeah, we get asked about that stuff all the time. And so G2, I think, was looking at it. We talked to them a bit about it. They asked us our perspective, too, on kind of like what are some of the requirements that we're seeing from companies here. And so we always try and help analysts where we can, right, to better understand the market, especially as we see it, because we're very close to it on a day-to-day basis. And so G2 has done that. I imagine a number of other analysts will keep picking this up as the category continues to grow. Yeah, we just had Goodard, maybe I'm saying his name wrong, but the CEO of G2 on uh, a few weeks ago, and, and he was talking through that process behind the scenes. And he was saying it you know, takes just a number of companies all coming to them saying the same thing. And that's where a new category is born. So did you see a lot of competitors or is that a routed space now? Like how many competitors are listed in that category in G2? You know, I don't recall off the top of my head. I do know that as part of G2's process, and you may have already talked about that, but I think they will only create a new category when there are enough companies competing in it that they feel like it it means it's a real category. Like if if you're a company of one doing something, I don't think they actually will create a category around it because it doesn't reflect that the market actually, you know, sees it as a real problem necessarily. And so I believe there are other companies in that category for sure. I think every company obviously specialize in slightly different things. The things that we do at Scoop, I believe we can do kind of uniquely relative to anybody else's capabilities. But I think G2 had a number of companies that they at least broadened into that hybrid team enablement bucket. Yeah, that was his number one piece of advice for anyone who wants to create a category. He said, go and coordinate with your competitors and and come to us all together and then we'll talk. But if it's like you said, it's the category of one, there's no point of even covering that at all. So makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Now, talk to me about your first paying customer. So it's obviously very difficult to always land those first few. Can you talk us through some of those early customers and what you're able to do to get them across the line? Yeah, our very first paying customers on our hybrid team software just kind of came very organically out of conversations with companies that would find us by searching for hybrid team oriented problems. You know, I think when we started to shift this direction in 2020, I think we brought on our first hybrid team customers in the beginning of 2021. Companies were searching and trying to figure out, like, how do I bring people back into the office? Like, how do I coordinate around some of that activity? And so we set it up relatively simply. We're on our website. We had a link to book a demo. We would have conversations and use it as a combination of both learning more about the problem and the company itself and also the space to help inform our product. We set up a free trial motion where any company could start to use Scoop and see if it fit for them as a solution for what they needed. And that's kind of where our first customers came from. You know, they were companies you know, generally across the company, country, and different industries. They were trying to solve challenges associated with hybrid work. And who's the buyer of the product today? Is it HR? Is it operations? Who is that? Yeah, we found it to be a few different folks. So sometimes it's HR who is thinking about it from a workplace culture and talent attraction perspective. Quite often, we find it sometimes workplace or real estate who are thinking about the workplace experience of bringing folks together. 
And then increasingly, we're finding it being just general C-level operators, right? Like GMs of businesses or C-level executives that want to figure out the right way to bring their people together, but maybe have been struggling to do that in some fashion or to motivate people to want to come together and want to roll out technology to make that easier. You know, one of the things I think that's really attractive to me about the category broadly is that everyone feels the experience of hybrid in different capacities, and it allows you to kind of diffuse the number of buyers within an organization really attractively. Hmm. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And what type of growth are you seeing today? Uh, our audience loves hearing metrics. So any numbers you can share just to tease us about your growth would be awesome to hear. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we've been really excited about it. Probably a couple of different ways of thinking about it. One, probably the most like significant traction of late that we've seen is on the Flex Index that we launched. So we built the Flex Index out of a problem that we were finding on our Scoop software side, right? Which was we we're building solutions for hybrid. The question was, okay, well, which companies are hybrid and in what capacity? And we found that not only did we not know the answer to that, but most people didn't know the answer to that. And if you were a job seeker, there was no good way for you to go figure out what a company's specific policy or approach to office requirements were. If you were media, we would find that a single company would change their uh, approach, like Disney, for example, and then uh, media wouldn't know if that's an indication that everybody's changing their approach or if it's one-offs. Future of work researchers were looking for more info. And so we built the Flex Index, which is a global repository of office requirements and approaches to flexible work, with the idea being that we could solve a real gap and it would be helpful from a building brand perspective, from driving traffic perspective, that also would be helpful for what we're doing on the software side. So we launched that in February. But when we launched it, we launched it with 4,000 plus companies that covered 25,000 offices, 100 million employees, and the specific office requirements. And honestly, the feedback has been amazing, like way past what we would have expected. We've had reports and articles on our insights and Forbes, Fortune, Bloomberg, LA Times, Skim. We could basically get covered from a top tier publication every week to two weeks on what we're doing in the Flex Index. Uh, it's driven a lot of attention from companies that are interested in basically validating their profile and sharing information, more job seekers coming to the site to learn about office requirements. And all of that is kind of feeding our core kind of scoop engine in terms of what we're trying to do. And so that's been probably one of the most exciting things we've seen over the last few months. And where is that data coming from? So from those 4,300 companies or 4,200 companies, where'd you get that data? Yeah, it's a combination of a few places. And a lot of it was kind of like grassroots, kind of like grind to get it uh, type of effort. So a lot of it comes from employee surveys where we put together a really simple kind of like 30 to 60 second survey where you could answer five questions and we could typecast your company in terms of the approach to hybrid work or to office requirements. We also look for anything that's publicly available. So a journalist wrote about your company or you put something on a careers page. We try and find that and use that to integrate as well. And then we'll reach out to the companies and say, hey, look, we created a listing for you on the Flex Index. You can edit it, update it, verify it. And sometimes companies would be like, yep, that's exactly right. And sometimes they'll say, actually, this little bit is different and we can update the info that way. And between those resources or kind of different sources, it's become a really, really valuable property. And is that media coverage organic or journalists discovering this? Or do you have a PR team or someone in-house who is just hammering journalists to get this data in front of them? You know, it's funny. So I would say about half of it is organic. And every day, like, for example, we had a great article that was written up in The Motley Fool the other day that was just, how could you use the Flex Index for your next job search, right? And that stuff is awesome and super helpful. And the other is we put out monthly reports. So in February, when we launched it, we put out an inaugural report from the Flex Index. We call it Flex Report. 
in the Flex Report covers across U.S. companies, what percentage are fully on-site versus fully remote versus hybrid? What are we seeing by geography? What are we seeing by industry? Is it different for small firms and large firms? And I think there's a real hunger for that data. And so when we put out reports, that stuff gets covered pretty far and wide. So Forbes covered our first one in February. Bloomberg did one that we did on financial services and banks in March. Fortune and Inc. covered a report that we did in April on uh, how flexibility varies by how old a company is. And we're going to put out our next report, our kind of Q2 flex report, which talks about the changes from the first quarter to second quarter of this year in a couple of weeks. And we'll talk to a bunch of different publications about that as well. Nice. That's so smart. What else are you doing to rise above the noise? As I'm sure you've seen, the market's noisy. Uh, despite everything that's going on with you know funding slowing, there was a lot of funding that happened in 2020, 2021, and I guess maybe part of 2022. So what are you doing to rise above the noise, you know, apart from this research play that you have and this data play that you have? Yeah, you know, I think there's a combination of, at least personally, my view as a founder is there's a part of it where you want to rise above the noise and there's a part of it where you just want to shut it out. And sometimes I think the shutting it out piece is the more important in that you know, there are always going to be plenty of different potential investors you know, who may or may not be interested in your company. They'll all have different perspectives on what you should or shouldn't be doing at this point in time. The news cycle will always be aggressive in terms of what's going on in the macro economy and what's good or bad for you. And if you try and listen to all that stuff and take all that different input, it'll just drown you. It's basically paralyzing you know, in terms of how do you operate. And so for me, what I've always tried to do is, one, focus on what I can control. I can control our team, the culture that we build, the way that we execute, uh, the way we spend our money. Like Those are the things that I can control really effectively. And I try and put my head down as best as I can and do that. Mm -hmm. Two, I try and lean on a few mentors that I really, really believe in, who I know have given consistently good advice and are level-headed over time. So for me personally, there's a folks like uh, Jeff Weiner, obviously used to be CEO at LinkedIn and now is an investor. He's a close mentor of mine and has been with us you know, as a mentor since 2016. Greg McAdoo is a great investor. He used to be at Sequoia for a long time, who gives really thoughtful advice. And I try and find a few folks like that who can be really, really helpful and I can be honest with about what's going on. And that's what I do. Just focus on those relationships, focus inwardly. And I think if you do that and you build a great company, build a great product, there will always be market and capital for that over time. And you can drown out a lot of the noise. And just going through your website, you guys are killing it with content marketing. Did that come natural for you? Did you hire a rock star content marketer? Or what's the engine there behind the scenes of all this epic content and this epic content strategy? Yeah, it's funny. We were terrible about this in the very early days of Scoop. Um, we would do it sometimes, but intermittently and not consistently. And one of the things you just realize over time is you just have to commit. Like if you're going to build through content, it's not going to you know, turn a bunch of traffic necessarily day one, but you have to commit to doing it, putting out high quality content. And so we just made it a core focus of the business and the Flex Index we knew was going to be a really powerful content engine. So we put out the reports and the analytics accordingly that we knew would be valuable. And then hybrid is just so new. And there are so many questions about how to navigate through hybrid and what does hybrid even mean and what technology should we use? How do you run a hybrid meeting? And and so every time we just try and continue to build more content that we think you know, our audience is going to find valuable, and some of it might see a lot of traffic and some might see a little, but on the whole, it will drive growth and attention month over month. And and so that's really the engine and the vast majority of it is done internally. And sometimes we work with contractors to help us with a little bit of it, but it has to be a priority for you as a company. 
Mm, yeah, super helpful advice. What about your podcast? Talk us through the the podcast and give us a pitch on yeah anyone who may be wanting to listen in. And just in general, I'd love to hear you know directly from you like what are the benefits that you've seen from hosting the podcast? Yeah, absolutely. So it's relatively new. It's been honestly really fun to do and something that I kind of wish I started to do earlier. So the genesis of the idea and the podcast is called Flex Perspectives. The genesis of the idea is we started to put out the content that you noted on Flex Index and what's going on in flexible work and started to build a newsletter out of it. And so we started a newsletter in February. The newsletter already has 1,500 subscribers. And so we could tell that there was just a lot of energy around content on this topic and and realized that maybe it wasn't just written content that would be valuable, but you know, we have a really good network now of thought leaders and innovators and other folks that are doing really interesting things in flexible work or future of work and wanted to bring some of that stuff forward. And so we created a podcast called Flex Perspectives. And Flex Perspectives is literally interviews where we'll do maybe 30 to 45 minutes with different thought leaders and innovators on future of work. We've done two episodes so far. So the first one was with Phil Kirshner, who's a partner at McKinsey. I used to be at WeWork and really thoughtful on workplace and future of workplace. The second was with Brian Elliott, who is the founder of Future Forum and was an SVP at Slack before that. Um, we have a new one coming out on Tuesday next week with Carly Zakin and Danielle Weisberg, who are co-founders of The Skim, which is a big, important media property. And I've just had a really good time doing it and have found the the content to be valuable, not just in the podcast, but also the clips then of videos and being able to share little you know, snippets and social and other places has just been really fun to do. And you can find it everywhere. It's on our website. It's on Spotify. It's on Apple. It's on Amazon. And so folks, check it out. We'd love the feedback, but it's something we're going to keep doing. And it's been a really nice compliment to the other types of content that we've been putting out. Yeah, and yeah, I'm obviously a big believer in podcasting for startups, but the pushback that I see from founders a lot is they don't have time or mainly the ROI, that it's very hard to you know, justify the ROI and, and measure the impact. So what are you going to do long term to like measure that impact of the podcast and see if it's moving the needle? Or how are you thinking about that in general? Yeah, I think that founders struggle with medium to long term investments to be honest. And I think it's something that I struggled with in the early days of Scoop, and I'm much more attuned toward now. And I think it happens for a couple of reasons. One, some founders are so focused on what does the next 18 months look like? And what do I need to do to accomplish and kind of like be successful in that time period? And what are my investors telling me I need to prove you know, to get to that next milestone? And while that kind of short-term thinking is important, and you certainly have to get to the next milestone, there's also a milestone after that. Right? Like, what does it mean to go from chapter one to chapter two? And what actually drives the long-term growth of the business? And building the growth drivers of a company is not something that happens overnight. You know, it requires dedicated investment and focus over time. And if you go talk to anybody who's built a podcast or built a really strong SEO organization, a really strong content pipeline, it always starts small and you have to keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And suddenly small becomes medium and medium becomes large and starts to build. And we start to find even early on is that the people who read our newsletter will also listen to our podcast. People who listen to our podcast and then listen and follow us on social and comment on social. When we then talk to customers or other folks and they ask, are we experts in this space or what else do we know? We point to the different properties we have and it builds kind of reputation for what we're doing at Scoop. And then we're also a little bit warmer in terms of brand than if we're just reaching out cold without those different properties. And so 
sometimes I think people can get too hung up in the measurement of it. You know, does the podcast return immediately or within a month? Probably not. But in six months or 12 months or 18 months, if you do it consistently, are you going to be happy you did it? I think the vast, vast majority of people would say yes. It just requires that level of commitment and understanding that not everything pays off right away. Yeah, that's super helpful insight and super helpful perspective there. Now, let's talk about the go-to-market journey. So apart from the uh, the nuclear bomb of COVID, what would you say was your greatest go-to-market challenge that you experienced and overcame? Yeah, I think probably our biggest challenge, and it's kind of funny, it goes back in some ways to that question you were asking before about like drowning, about the noise and, and how do you deal with kind of like rising above the noise. I'll give an example from our commute days, which was in the very beginning in 2015, we had this idea that we were going to build a carpooling solution for employees to share trips back and forth to the office. Investors, when we go to venture community, it said, nobody wants to carpool. You know, like this is an idea that people have tried before, like no one wants to carpool, it's not going to happen. And so ultimately, we got some great folks to give us some capital. We built it. And then I don't know if you remember this, but obviously a couple of years after that, 2016, 2017, I think Uber launched Uber Pool and Lyft launched Lyft Line. And there are a bunch of other things in the market that were all shared ride type equivalents. And then investors said, not only is carpooling a real thing, but Uber and Lyft are going to crush you. So like this thing that we told you 18 months ago wasn't a real thing. Now it's such a real thing and everybody's going to put you out of business. And so the biggest challenge that we had in some ways was there's just never a shortage of opinions and pulling you in different directions in terms of what the right answer is. And when it came to kind of like raising capital or what it meant to build a business, ultimately, you just have to have your kind of perspective on what you think is the right thing to do. And you kind of go after it. And you know, I think that was true then. It's been true in building the hybrid work you know, solution, hybrid team coordination solution that we do now. That's probably been the biggest thing. And based on this you know, entire company building journey for what it's been almost eight years now, if you had to reflect on that and give yourself one piece of advice that you wish you knew when you were starting the company, what would it be? I think that probably the number one piece of advice is you have to be incredibly disciplined around how do you think about growing the headcount and size of the company. And there is a period of time in the valley where and I think some founders still struggle with this, where they think that the size of the team in some ways is a badge of honor and that it's a sign of success as the team grows larger and larger. But as companies get bigger, it becomes more and more difficult. Examples being your culture starts to be more and more impacted by more and more people. And it's a little bit harder to control in terms of like the actual dynamic and environment that you're operating in. Information diffusion gets much more difficult as companies get larger, you know, it used to be that you could just kind of raise your hand and look at everybody and everyone stops what they're doing and you can deliver a message. And now when you have, you know, when you go to 100, 200, 500 people, that gets way, way more difficult in terms of how do you get messages out there. Companies become more bureaucratic as they get larger. Decisions get made more slowly. Uh, there's more competing priorities. You're burning more capital. And so it just starts to build its own momentum that's not necessarily positive momentum as companies kind of get bigger. And so one thing I think we've done a, a much better job at probably second time around in terms of you know, building it is uh, just being really, really thoughtful around, is this hire really a hire that we need to make, right? Is this is something that we're incredibly clear this is going to be valuable and it's so valuable that it's worth doing? And just taking a much higher bar to the way that we grow, the way that we approach growth broadly And I think that's something that we could have done significantly better the first time around. And I'm guessing a lot of first-time entrepreneurs probably struggle with. 
And final question here, let's zoom out into the future. So three to five years from today, what does the company look like? I think Scoop's going to be an indispensable partner to any hybrid employee kind of like going through their journey. That's what we really focus on is not just how do you think about when you go into the office and what that experience looks like? How do you navigate your hybrid day? How do you decide where you work? How do you do the right work in the right places? How do you get together with the right people at the right times? If I take a step back, our biggest belief is that employees are getting better and more familiar with the experience of hybrid, but the tooling and software available to them to actually navigate hybrid is not caught up yet. And our focus is going to be how do we improve every element of that so employees can operate incredibly fluidly through hybrid in the office and out, how they move in and out of meetings, et cetera. And it's something I'm just incredibly excited about given the size and potential impact of billions of people operating in a hybrid environment in the future. Amazing. I love it. Rob, we are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build, where should they go? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find us a number of different places. So our website is scoopforwork, S-C-O-O-P for work.com. Uh, if you want to follow the Flex Index, it's flex.scoopforwork.com. We put out a lot of content on our website, but also um, on our pages on LinkedIn in particular. So you can find Scoop and Flex Index there. I put out a lot of content personally on LinkedIn as well. So you can follow me there. And then lastly, check out the Flex Perspectives podcast. You can find it on our site, on Spotify, on Apple, and any of those places. Amazing. Rob, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story and talk about what you're building. And most importantly, the lessons that you've learned. I've learned a lot from this episode, and I know our audience is going to as well. So thanks so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Matt, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode. 